When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Mind Love, episode 322. Today's episode is all about how time doesn't heal all. Navigating PTSD and rediscovering self-worth after traumatic experiences. It is terrifying to live in a world where bad things can happen at any time. In a way, when we blame ourselves, I think we're telling ourselves that we could have had more control over the situation and that we could have change the outcome of what would have happened in a way. Like if I didn't drink, then this wouldn't have happened. When we're blaming ourselves like that, it is a way for us to feel like we have more control when in reality, some things will happen that are terrible, that are absolutely out of our control. I think it's easier to sometimes blame ourselves than to live in the reality that terrible things can happen and people can do things that are really harmful. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. If this is your first time giving your mind a little love, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Mind love is a habit, and the more you give your mind that love and intention, the better you'll feel about yourself and your life. Plus, it's really a win-win because more subscribers means mind love attracts even more amazing guests to bring you their wisdom. So don't forget to subscribe. Have you ever experienced something that you've just never quite got over? a loss, a betrayal, a violation of some sort, or maybe a memory resurfaced years later, followed by a whole lot of emotions that you never really saw coming. When I was younger, the phrase, time heals all wounds, was always spoken with such conviction that I just accepted it as fact. So when I experienced things and emotions that didn't just solve themselves, I wondered, well, how much time? I have like a hundred years max and I don't really want to spend it anchored down by my hardships. And how does that platitude apply to people with PTSD? Who wants to tell that 75-year-old veteran who still jumps out of bed from night sweats that time heals all wounds? Well, here's the thing. I used to think that PTSD was basically an ex-military thing, but guess what? 70% of people will experience some type of trauma in their lives, and 20% of those people will experience PTSD. That's over a billion people walking around with some pretty heavy emotional baggage. I never really labeled myself as someone with PTSD, and I still don't really, but maybe that's just because the word has connotations that I don't relate to. But the fact is, I've gone through some shit, and that shit still comes up from time to time. It's not as debilitating as it once was, but it's a part of who I am. So how did I get to this point of relative peace? I did the work. 
I dove deep into the murky waters of my pain, swam through it, and emerged stronger and more resilient. I didn't just let time pass and hope for the best. And what I've come to understand is, time does not heal all. Time allows some space to do something with the pain, but that something isn't always productive, especially if we try to let it process itself. So while you may not be crying yourself to sleep at night anymore, you could have a fear of relationships that prevents you from finding a long-term partner. Trust issues might be stopping you from forming close friendships. Constant stress could be a sign that your nervous system is always on high alert. Or emotional numbness might make you feel disconnected, as if you're just going through the motions in your own life. The key takeaway? Just because you're not in obvious distress doesn't mean there aren't underlying issues that need attention. And the good news is, recognizing these can be the first step towards actually addressing them. And the second step is being willing to do the work. So what is the work? How do we unpack our emotional suitcases to move through life a little lighter? Or even better, fully engaged with the here and now? Well, that's what we're talking about today. Our guest is Madeline Pulpelga. She grew up in a household where mental health was never discussed, which was extra hard given that she experienced multiple traumatic events. When she started to experience PTSD symptoms in her late 20s, she realized that she didn't know the first step in getting help. As she began her healing journey, she felt an urge to create a space for other trauma survivors on Instagram, at Healing from PTSD, which is now one of the largest trauma healing communities on Instagram. And there she shares her hard-earned lessons on healing, inspiring hundreds of thousands of survivors along their healing journeys too. And she's the author of You're Going to Be Okay. So three key things we will learn are why your therapist's coping skills might not be working for you, and the game-changing advice that could change your progress. How self-blame holds you back, and the surprising reason behind your need for control. And the secret coping skill for anxiety and panic attacks. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family, or you have a work deadline, or something unexpected comes up, and you're all stressed out, and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. And now let's welcome Madeline Papelka to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. I have been loving your book, just the way it's written. And it just feels so personable. I feel like I can see myself in a lot of it. And so what originally inspired it? 
Yeah, so this project is very personal to me, and um, it's the book that I needed to read when I started my healing journey, and I didn't feel seen or supported. So I'm someone who has been through several traumatic experiences throughout my life, starting in my childhood, but because they weren't quote unquote that bad and they could have been worse, I continuously buried my pain after every experience and just tried to move on. And about six years ago, it all caught up to me. And I started to suffer from severe trauma symptoms that completely disrupted my life and made it impossible to function day to day, like I couldn't sleep, I couldn't work. And ultimately, I was diagnosed with PTSD. And when I received that diagnosis, I was really ashamed, um, because I didn't know anyone else in my life who was struggling with trauma. And at the time, it wasn't discussed as much. And I didn't see a lot of social media posts about it like I do now. And I really suffered in isolation and I was really desperate to find a path toward healing. And that's when I turned to books. And a lot of the books that I read, they had a lot of great information about like PTSD and how it impacts the brain and the symptoms, but they were also very clinical where they talk about the science and breaking all that down and it wasn't really what I needed and what I needed for support during that time. I really needed someone who was, you know, going to sit with me on the floor and be like, you know, what you're going through right now is really hard, but we're going to get through it. And I really needed encouragement and that hope. So that's why I wrote my book, You're Going to Be Okay, to offer other survivors like me some hope and to show them that healing is possible while also providing some of the lessons that I learned as I was healing. I appreciated it so much because I had an experience when I was 15 and it wasn't until the Me Too movement that I saw it in a different light. And what was interesting is that later on in my teens, I ended up being, I was raped. I went through some other traumatic experiences and especially one with a really horrible ex-boyfriend. And so in my mind, that was my trauma. And I couldn't see how this very first experience where it was it was sexual assault that didn't go all the way to rape, but it was in front of a bunch of people while I was drunk. Like I was one of the first times I had ever been drunk. There was a group of people cheering on this guy. And because I was drinking, I thought it was my fault. You know, I couldn't I couldn't say no, so I didn't say no. And maybe if I would have been able to, maybe this wouldn't have happened. Maybe I said yes, like who knows? And the aftermath of that was people finding out in school, me not sharing my version of the story, because like I said, I didn't even have my version of the story. I was processing it while people were finding out, while people were spreading rumors about me. And so I internalized those rumors. And there was something about, it was the beginning of the Me Too movement. I can't remember which case it was. I think it was one where a girl was sexually assaulted in a park and a biker 
a, a man on a bike ended up saving her or finding her or something. But she had a really powerful testimony. And I remember laying in bed watching it. And, oh, I can feel myself choking up as I'm thinking about it now because all of a sudden this past experience that I hadn't been bringing up in my conscious memory at all for about a decade and a half, it just flew into my mind and I was seeing it through new eyes and I was so emotional. I have chills right now even still talking about it. I had worked hard to process all of these other things, but not that because I couldn't see it for what it was and and there were two it, there were blurry lines and and like you it was like what i needed my husband ended up being very helpful in that time but what i needed and i didn't even know i needed was somebody to just validate that this happened to me i wasn't mm-hmm. even validating myself for that long and so when he was able to just hold me i can choke up thinking about it but when he was able to just hold me and hear this version of my experience I like, I broke down. It bonded he and I. I felt stronger than I had ever had. It was like I had some emotional blockage. I know that was kind of a long story, but that's why I appreciate this idea that trauma, you might not even realize that you have it. You might not even realize what you need. And all of those, it's not that bad. It could have been worse. Sometimes is the thing that makes it worse. Mm -hmm. That's so true. And I'm so sorry for everything that you had been through. It sounds so painful. And I, at the same time, also appreciate you and your courage bringing it up now, because like how you realized in the Me Too movement, like how this brought up these, these memories from your past, like that's happened to me and so many other people were like, oh, I experienced assault, but I didn't realize it because it has been like so normalized or when you see someone else name it and someone else say that this was wrong, it can be like a big step towards healing and realization for yourself too, because you're like, you can start to see your experiences through the lens of someone else and it can give you a new perspective on that and that can lead to so much healing. So Thank you for creating the space for this conversation and for your willingness to share. And I'm reminded of this idea that, and so many of us were told this, that time heals all wounds. And this is something that you specifically address. Mm -hmm. And I think it's illustrated in my story in that I hadn't thought about it. I had moved on. I wasn't sitting there creating a story, dwelling on it, amplifying my story, which is a lot of the things that keeps us stuck in a cycle. It's actually our own thoughts about it. But my thoughts about it weren't even that it was a trauma. It was like I just moved on. But when I addressed it, there was a very obvious emotional release, like a blockage was released. And I was able to see parts of myself. And so what do you know now uh, with this idea that healing isn't really necessarily effortless oh my gosh it is it takes work you need to be if you are not actively healing then it is it's just not a passive activity you know because I went through like my childhood trauma is something that I buried and forgot about for two decades and then it all started to resurface like things would happen that would trigger me and then 
it would it would take a minute to be like, okay, where is this coming from? Because when you so far detach yourself from these experiences, you can like question what you went through. Like, did I really go through this? And it's like your mind can play like these tricks on you and it can be like really confusing. But because little things can trigger us and it can bring up, it can bring up traumas from our past, it can bring them back to the surface. It just demonstrates that if you just try to forget about it and move on, the trauma will always come back and remind you in one way or another of what you've been through. And unless you start to address that trauma head on, it will always be there lingering in the background waiting for that next moment to resurface. And the only way to truly release is to address it. Otherwise, you're kind of just dancing around it or avoiding it and not starting to peel back the layers and to process all the emotions, kind of what you were um, sharing about with this release. I feel like a big part of that too is just the willingness to face the emotions because that's the biggest thing that has changed in my perspective around healing or strength. I used to think that it was just, you know, moving forward and and being able to hold myself together really and that that mm. would be the thing that strengthened me. Now I see it's that willingness to be vulnerable, to actually sit with the feelings, to ask what's in it for me. And and for me, I relate to the ideas of being a highly sensitive person or an empath and even highly sensitive in sensory things. I've had sensory issues my whole life. Like <laughs> I couldn't wear jeans until I was like 15 years old because the inseam would annoy me. <laughs> but yeah, so I'm just very sensitive. And so for my upbringing, I was always really emotional. And I got a lot of negative feedback for that. And I don't think it was intentional. It was just how people thought back then. It was like, no, it's, you got to get through this. You got to get over it. I know your dad died last year, but it's time to move on. You can't let it hold you back forever. And, and so I would just sort of stuff it away. I had no idea the power of actually befriending my emotions in a way to to sit with them, see what's in it for me. I just kind of thought they were an inconvenient part of pain. <laughs> so what is your Absolutely. process of confronting those feelings? And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. It's a zero sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams, 
Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard, and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says, <laughs> and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small, and when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MindLove. So what is your process of confronting those feelings? I mean, I can relate to so much of what you said. Like I spent up until I was like 28 years old, just running from my emotions. Like I had a really hard time learning how to identify my feelings when I started going to therapy when I was 28. And it was like, I was learning a new language or something like that. Like it seemed I had never taken the time to identify my feelings, learn about them, to be with them up until I went to therapy. And I was like, this is a lot of the work of healing is is tuning into yourself. And um, yeah, because nobody had taught me how to do that earlier in my life. I just went on ignoring them. And I think that there's this idea of quote unquote mental toughness, which is really to like, people see it as something to like, just ignore your feelings and to not let them bother you. But it's so true that um, tuning into ourselves is where I think a lot of the strength internal strength comes from. So for me, when it comes to identifying my feelings, like there are a lot of great tools out there um, that helped me get the ball rolling. Like there are like these feelings wheels and stuff like that. You can Google to help you identify your feelings if you are, if you're just like, I don't know where to start. But also for me, when I feel something coming up and I just feel like a really strong emotion, whether I'm like overwhelmed or frustrated or, or upset, um, I think it's really important to take a moment to pause and take a few deep breaths 
and then turn inward and really be like, okay, what am I feeling right now? Where am I feeling it? Because sometimes that can, um, like tuning into how my body is feeling can help me identify the feeling as well. Like if I, um, you know, if my chest is like fluttering, like, you know, that could be like anxiety. It could be like a point of like frustration. So yeah, that's the most important thing for me is just really slowing down and taking the time to identify the feelings And take a few deep breaths because when you're feeling really horrible, it can feel like you're going to be stuck in that feeling forever and it's never going to go away. But the thing is, feelings are temporary and they will pass. So I always try to remind myself um, in those moments when I am really struggling and when I want to run away from the feeling too, when I'm tempted to you know, ignore it or distract myself to remind myself that I won't feel this way forever. I have noticed that I've gone through a sort of evolution in, well, really everything, but (laughs) in this, in the sitting with the feelings, whereas I'm, I'm sort of evolving into a new phase where I used to, I still do, but I, I analyze things and that's kind of how I bring myself to the healing side of it. I'm like, how can I look at this from a different perspective? How, like what's actually coming up for me? I I did notice quite often I'll think I have one emotion and if I just sit with it longer, it's actually something else. This happens more often when I'm irritated with people. (laughs) Like if I really notice I'm like irritated with my husband, I'll sit with it and I'm like, is it even that? Like, what is it? (laughs) It's, oh, it's actually this other thing and these other things are on top and I'm focusing on those, but it's the deeper thing over here. And I would kind of go through some mental gymnastics to get there. And it was helpful for a long time. It still can be. But now I am taking the pressure off of trying to figure it out and literally Mm. just experiencing it, like just sitting there and, and yes, getting curious about where it is in my body, but I'll visualize it as almost like a lump of energy. And I'll just start to look at it like, where is that? And I'll see it as like a, a ball of something, color maybe. And then I'll just start to imagine it like trickling in different areas of my body moving through. And something about that transmutes it, it like transforms it into something else. It might even just be that it's more manageable, because it's not this over all encompassing feeling that's taking over everything. It's just that little ball right there. (laughs) And I'm already picturing it dispersing. So it must be moving. You know what I mean? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. um, No, I love that. And one of my former therapists had brought that up to me at one point when I was when you know, we were talking about feelings and like how I can I tend to avoid feelings sometimes. And that was one trick that they had brought up is like visualizing it as like a thing of energy and like, how does it feel to release it and that sort of thing. So um, that's so great that you brought it up because I think, I mean, absolutely different things can help us at different times. And sometimes, like, as you were talking about, like, really digging into, like, the why and getting curious about your feelings and um, gaining more information about yourself through that process can be really helpful and supportive. Other times, visualizing it in a different way as a way to just release it can be even more helpful. So um, that's really great. You talk about this realization that healing lies in your hands. 
Can you elaborate on how this mindset shift impacted your approach to therapy and self-care? Yeah. So when I went to therapy for the first time, and I know I'm not alone in this, but when I went, I was expecting that I would like kind of show up to therapy and my therapist would do their thing. And then, you know, after a few sessions, everything would be better. But I think the thing that really, there were several things, but one example that I will give is coping skills. So when you're dealing with like a lot of anxiety and panic attacks and just generally feeling unsafe or paranoid all the time, which is what a lot of people who have um, PTSD experience, um, the coping skills really allow you to get through the day, to continue functioning. So um, when I first started therapy, that was like really foundational work for us, like even before going into the deeper trauma things, because I need to have I need I needed to be on more stable ground because I was not there yet. So a lot of that work went into developing coping skills. And I went to therapy and my therapist would introduce me to a bunch of coping skills, grounding exercises, breathing exercises. And I got really frustrated because when in a moment when panic would arise and I'd try one of the coping skills that I learned in therapy, I'd be like, this is not working. And it would make me even more anxious and it would lead to panic because I'd be like, okay, what my therapist told me is not working for me. So I must be broken. And then I went to my therapist with this. I was just like, hey, um, what I like, none of these coping skills are working for me. None of these breathing exercises are working. And she explained to me that breathing exercises and these coping strategies, you need to practice them. So you really have them as a tool in order to use them in those instances when panic arises and when you really need them. Because if you don't practice the breathing exercises when you're more calm and you just do them when you're already in a panic state, like it's not going to work how it's intended. So that was that was like one thing where I was like, oh, okay, so I need to do practice and practice therapy things outside of therapy like I can't just show up and have that be it for me so that was like the first thing where I was like okay I actually need to like going to therapy once a week for an hour is not going to do it for me I need to continuously do the work outside of therapy and I think that's when I realized like the role that my therapist was going to play in my healing journey. Like instead of them being the person who was going to fix all the things, I started to see them as a person who was introducing me to more tools and was like, you know, directing me in some sort of way, but it was ultimately up to me to use the tools to implement them and to continuously do the work. And then also sometimes my therapist suggested things that I did not like that did absolutely not work for me. And it was in my hands to figure out what would work for me and to continue on that path. So that's such an important realization because it's like even whether you're taking a medication, a supplement, a healing tool, 
something holistic, it's any, even the ones with the most extensive studies, it's like 90% of people experience this. So there's still that 10%. And that doesn't mean it doesn't work. It just means we're all individual and some things work for other people. And especially when it comes to some of these emotional healing tools, I find that resistance comes up fairly frequently. (laughs) Like there's certain things that I know work really well for other people, but I can just feel this internal resistance and I don't know what it is. It's like one word of it triggers me. It reminds me of something before that didn't work or someone or something like that. And so, yeah, we kind of have to play with it. I always talk about my like Rolodex of mindsets or tools of just sort of flipping through. Is this working? Does this work? Does this work? Until you land on it. And I'm glad you mentioned this the thought that like, oh, therapy's not working in the beginning and the mindset shift that comes with that. I was just interviewing uh, Stephanie Zostak, who is on one of the actresses on Million Little Things, and it brought up that I have a weird relationship with therapy. It's been super helpful at certain times. And now like I've, I've tried going back like 15 different times and it works for me when I have something very specific. Like I was going through a block of motivation last year and I got a therapist for like six weeks and I was like, okay, cool. I'm back on track. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's like, now I have so many tools and my mind sort of goes to these things. And so I go to therapy and I'm like, okay, I know what you're going to say. <laughs> like I, I'm already knowing what you're going to say. But when I remember that it's not the role of the therapist to fix me, a lot of times with a, whether it's a therapist or a coach, they're skilled in asking you the questions to come to your own conclusion. That's mm-hmm. when it really works. If they just feed it to me, it doesn't work so much. But then every now and then I'm like, yeah, I know what you're going to say. This actually happened last time I had a therapist. And I was sitting there like almost rolling my eyes like this is a waste of time. And it was like the last seven minutes of a session and he said something and it, he asked the right question that brought out a memory of that I forgot completely. And I was like, that is the root of this. <laughs> and I was like, okay, three sessions, I'm done with you now. And then I kind of moved on, didn't see him anymore. I felt fixed. But I think it's just important to realize because so many people have different judgments over different healing modalities, whether it's therapy or bre- breathing, breath work, meditation. And sometimes it just is your own resistance to it, your expectations for it. Mm. That's what's holding you back. And if you just sort of let go and allow yourself to be guided, you'll end up where you need to be. Yeah. Yeah. So true. I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning It's true with purpose, with relationships, with higher versions of yourself, and it's also true for hiring. The best way to search is actually just to match with Indeed. Indeed is your one-stop hiring platform with millions of job seekers visiting every month, and their powerful matching engine helps you find quality candidates fast. Plus, Indeed lets you schedule interviews, screen applicants, and message candidates all in one place. But Indeed isn't just about speed. They also deliver quality. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. 
I love Indeed because it makes hiring so much easier. I'm all about alignment in all areas of my life, and that includes people I hire to work in my business. So I need a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. And that's Indeed. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine gets smarter the more you use it, learning from your preferences and over 140 million qualifications. Plus, I love that I can do all my hiring in one place. It's just one less thing to keep track of between all of the other things. So join over 3.5 million businesses worldwide who rely on Indeed to find great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to Indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You also emphasize the importance of self-awareness in just identifying your own emotional needs. Mm -hmm. How do you cultivate self-awareness? What tools or practices helped you the most? So journaling, I would say, is the primary one that has, and I mean, I'm a writer. Journaling has always been a really important practice for me. But when I started struggling with my mental health, it took on like a whole new it, it was like a whole new thing for me and just building self-awareness, just like taking from identifying my triggers and learning how to process them. I would like, if I got triggered again, I would take a moment to pause, like take note of what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, and then learning and then, you know, taking note of what I had been through in the past and identifying triggers that way, that really helps build self-awareness um, and allowed me to learn how to desensitize my triggers with the help of a therapist. Um, and that was a huge step in my healing journey because before I'd get triggered and be like, what even triggered me? So just even learning about your triggers and building self-awareness in that way. But um, yeah, just journaling about my thoughts, my feelings, again, what I'm feeling in my body and making these connections, journaling about, you know, thoughts that I've had about things that happened in the past or anything that like just happened that really made me upset. So just writing everything down and not caring about spelling, grammar, handwriting, anything like that, just really journaling and letting the process of writing be a release, kind of just like dumping everything that is in my head onto the page. And then really using that information over time to gain more information about myself, to notice the patterns. And that's kind of how I built self-awareness over time. It is so interesting the way things pop back up. It's like my experience of like 15 years later watching 
somebody give a testimony and again, a memory that I didn't even know was so traumatic for me. And it took me like two years of working through that to feel okay. It was like all of a sudden it just happened yesterday. And I was so raw, more raw than it had been even right after it happened. I was focused on different things back then, like my reputation, trying to figure out what happened, like not getting in trouble from my mom for having people over when I like, there was all this other stuff around it that I had fear around. And so I didn't get to the root of, I was taken advantage of, something was taken from me. My ability to feel safe, to feel, it was really a worthiness issue. Mm -hmm. And that experience set off this weird pattern for me of gaining self-worth through sexual experiences. And I, there was a part of me that knew that I was trying to erase what happened by taking control, like having these, I was like really sexually explorative and college and things like that. And I really wanted people to know that it was no big deal for me. And I don't understand why people get so attached. And that started that next day after that first trauma. And so what I realized is that I blamed myself. And so I wasn't blaming the people who actually took advantage of me, the several older men, I mean, they were 18, I was 15, <laughs> surrounding mm. me, you know, I wasn't even putting the blame on them. I, part of me even wanted their approval in a way after it happened. It was very odd. And I know how you discuss self-blame as a survival response. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about some of the psychological mechanisms behind this? Yeah, so for me, at least, um, it is really terrifying to live in a world where things like this happen to people, where, you know, we can get assaulted, attacked um, by people we know, people we don't know. It is terrifying to live in a world where bad things can happen at any time. Um, and in a way, when we blame ourselves, I think we're telling ourselves that we could have had more control over the situation and that we could have changed the outcome of what would have happened in a way. Like, if I didn't drink, then this wouldn't have happened. Um, I think it's a way, it's when we're blaming ourselves like that, it is a way for us to feel like we have more control when in reality some things will happen that are terrible that are absolutely out of our control and that would not be preventable even if we were to you know quote unquote behave right and not you know it's just it's just really it's a really hard truth to live with I mean it, and the self-blame that you experience is so common and something that I experience as well with every traumatic experience that I went through. I think it's easier to sometimes blame ourselves than to live in the reality that terrible things can happen and people can do things that are really harmful. After my rape that I knew was a rape, the uh, later on in my teens, I went to therapy and that was the first time I had tried EMDR. And mm -hmm. I really appreciated the process 
later. When I was going through it, I was still kind of an angsty teen. And I was like, what is this? Like, there's beeping in my headphones and I have to like replay this. Why is this helpful? But I I appreciate it now because once I started to face this first experience, I realized that the work that I did with the second one really did help to desensitize my triggers. It did help me to not hold on to it. It had moved through me because when everything popped up, it wasn't that that was coming up. It was this first one, the ignored one, <laughs> the, mm. the neglected experience. And I ended up going through um, a tapping session. And the difference was where with EMDR, with a therapist, they had me kind of just replay this the situation and it was to desensitize these triggers. In the tapping experience, at least with the practitioner I worked with, it was similar, but I was rewriting the story in a more empowering mm. way. Like, what did I wish happened while tapping on these energy meridians? And both of those I found helpful. But what I liked about the rewriting of my experience was so often our trauma is that story. Yes, we also have things trapped in our bodies. That's what we re we need to release. But the part that really causes us so much mental anguish is this story that we keep telling ourselves that we amplify and it keeps coming up. And I suddenly had a new one to default to when I was with think about it, I would just be like, well, what did I learn in this tapping session? Okay, I'm gonna go this route. I'm gonna go to the right instead of the left. And it did help me to feel more empowered. And so I'm curious for you, what tools, if any, helped with your self-forgiveness as you heal? It was really building self-compassion for myself. I think self-compassion really led the way to self-forgiveness for me. So for listeners, one thing that I talk about in my book and one thing that I really blamed myself for was um, the sexual assault that my friend went to or went through. I was there for it and I witnessed it. And um, it's something that I believe I could have prevented had I not been drinking, had I known that she'd been drugged, all these things. So um, I blamed myself for a really long time. And what really led to, for me to release that self-blame was, number one, my therapist challenging my self-blaming beliefs. Like, I was like, I shouldn't have drunk. She was like, okay, how would you have not known to drink that night? You were having a fun time with your friend. And I was like, okay, well, if I were sober, then I would have been able to tell that she'd been drugged. And she was like, okay, well it's really hard to distinguish sometimes whether someone has been drugged or whether they have just had a couple drinks. And my therapist really pointed out to me like the, how could you have known? How could you have known what that to not do these things to prevent it from happening? Because the only person to blame is the perpetrator, not you. Having her challenge myself blaming beliefs really started to break that down with me and then learning to give myself more compassion. So instead of the critical voice that really dominated my thoughts would be like, you shouldn't have drunk, like how stupid, like you couldn't tell that she'd been roofied and just having a more compassionate voice with myself, learning how to speak with myself with more kindness like, for example, like, oh, what happened was really scary. And 
you did the best you could with the information that you had at the time, which is also true. Um, I mean, I'm not lying to myself when I'm saying that. And that doesn't mean that the self-critical voice has disappeared, but at least I'm balancing it out with more self-compassion. And over time, that self-compassion comes more naturally and the self-blame and the self-criticism starts to have a softer voice and smaller presence. Isn't it interesting how so much of our self-talk is actually resisting our experience? And it comes up whether we're telling ourselves, okay, it wasn't that bad. It could have been worse. Like, why are you feeling this way? Or I should have done this. Or I could have done this or I shouldn't be feeling this. And I know one of the things you even talk about is vicarious trauma, where Mm -hmm. you don't have to be the one, the direct victim of the traumatic event, just like the scenario you were just talking about. Mm -hmm. And so often we're like, well, it didn't happen to me. Why am I so like, I shouldn't feel this way. Like I'm weak, whatever it is. It's, and I wonder how our experience would change if we recognize that that was so much of our go-to so often, and instead we trained ourselves to not resist, not say this shouldn't be how it is, but just be like, I don't understand logically why I'm feeling this way, but I am feeling this way. So what's in it for me? Or like being more curious about it instead of saying no to it before we can even see why the experience is coming up for us. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think that if I had that approach, like after it happened, I would have been, I would have been much better off. Because I think when we say I shouldn't feel this way, that's when we start to bury the experiences, we dismiss the emotions instead of processing them. And when you, when you do that, you know, they, they just can intensify over time, and then turn into something even greater. Um, So I think that that would be a much better approach for us. And that's one reason why I always love to remind people that, you know, no matter what traumatic experience you go through, whether it happened directly to someone else and you are a witness, no matter how quote unquote small it seems, it matters. And how how it impacts you matters. I think self-validation is an incredibly important tool when it comes to healing. And it starts there by um, acknowledging what you've been through and validating your pain. You also emphasize the importance of setting boundaries, and not just with people, but also with technology and even the type of content that we consume. And I love this topic because I actually just did a pretty extensive survey with my audience and found that most of us relate to being highly sensitive or empathic and and boundaries are one of the big things for, for people like that. But usually we think of it in a way like, oh, it's boundaries around my time. Like, okay, learn to say no to things. But we don't often think of it not relating to people or even when it comes to healing. So can you share some of the practical steps for someone who's struggling to set these boundaries? Yeah. So I think the first step to setting boundaries is figuring out what you need and what helps you feel good. So if we're talking about healing and you brought up like technology, for instance, you know, these social media apps are designed to keep us in them and to keep us coming back and again and again. And there can be a lot of content on there that doesn't necessarily 
really help us feel good while there can be content on there that can be really supportive and inspiring. Um, At the same time, there can be a lot of content that can be triggering or, um, you know, just spending so much of your time on these apps can just be emotionally draining. If you notice that about yourself, if you notice that after spending you know, an hour scrolling, you don't feel good. That means that, you know, you need to change something. So um, if you are someone who will be scrolling up until the moment you go to bed and you realize that it's impacting your sleep because you saw a post or a comment that was upsetting or something that like actually triggered you and you had a full body response to it, then it would be a good idea to set a boundary for yourself to not be scrolling on social media before bedtime. And um, it doesn't mean that you need to go cold turkey and like cut out social media of your life. But maybe the, you know, two hours leading up to bedtime, like establish a no social media rule maybe put your phone away. And if you need to do something to distract yourself during the time, pick up a more nurturing activity to do instead of scrolling. Maybe it's reading, maybe it's doing a puzzle or like a word search or playing a game or doing a DIY, painting, whatever it is, you can replace the activity of scrolling with something else to make that transition a little bit easier. We so often have a tendency to be like, well, I'm not doing this, or we remember our tools and then we think of all the things that we're not doing. But I love how you emphasize acknowledging your progress. This is something that I completely changed my life, but I often think about it in something I'm trying to achieve, like goal setting or starting a business or the next move. I'm like, yes, I need, I know I need to acknowledge my progress, because otherwise I'll have a negativity bias, feel imposter syndrome, and then maybe not do anything. But I don't always remember to think about it when I am healing from something, when I'm just looking about my emotional journey. And so I know you had a moment in therapy where your therapist told you that you're making more progress than you were giving yourself credit for. What did you change after that to make sure that you acknowledge that? And how did you acknowledge it? Yeah. So after my therapist told me that, because I thought that I had gotten to a point in my healing during when I was like, I'm not going to be impacted by my trauma anymore. Like I'm having, like, I'm never having panic attacks now. And then it felt like there was a regression and I had a panic attack and my anxiety came back in full force and I couldn't sleep. And I was really hard on myself where it felt like I was back at square one. It was like, I felt like I was back at like my first therapy session when I was having a bunch of panic attacks and I was just feeling horrible. And um, my therapist told me that because I came in there and I was like, man, I'm like back where do I, where I started? Like, I'm so like mad at myself. And she like really challenged me to think about how I progressed. And I think that was a challenge, a challenge for me at first, because I was just had this mindset where I was just really hard on myself. And I was like, I suck. And, um, you know, 
I was losing hope, but I kept on, I would like replayed what my therapist said in my head. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll give a, give it a shot. And it took me a while, but as I really reflected on where I was at that point, um, which I believe it was like six months into my healing journey. So like six months into therapy, I took note of my symptoms. So like how often I was having panic attacks and how often I was having nightmares. And I realized that number one, I really had decreased my symptoms, even though I was experiencing panic attacks and anxiety that week, like the months leading up to that point, my symptoms had reduced significantly. And that was a huge win. I took note of how much more self-awareness I had in the skills that I learned in therapy. I knew how to identify my feelings at that point. So even though I had my symptoms resurface, I could recognize all the work that I'd done leading up to the point. And I had the realization that I was still progressing even though I was still simultaneously experiencing my trauma symptoms. And just because I was experiencing those symptoms didn't erase all the progress that I had made. And it didn't erase all the work that I had done up until that point. Because I mean, now that I'm, you know, several years later, I've learned that there will always be times when we have bad mental health days. There will always be times when something happens and we get triggered. Even if we do so much work into desensitizing our triggers, there can always be something that comes up that is out of our control that can lead to anxiety or panic, insomnia. And I think it's really important to not beat ourselves up in those moments and to remind ourselves of how far we've come, because I think that puts you in a better space to continue moving forward instead of being like, oh, I give up. Like, there's no hope. Reflecting and taking note of your progress really reminds you that healing is possible and that you are making progress. And um, I think it really gives you the motivation to keep moving forward and to continue progressing even when there are bumps along the way. That's such a, a good point is that uh, about setbacks, because I experienced that, that same thing. And I think for a, a lot of us, it comes with like there's different frameworks that have helped people heal from things that involve an idea of a relapse and that relapse starts you from zero. And that's not the case with so many things. That's not even how I, mm -hmm. I've overcome a lot of different addictions and that works for me until a point, but then it's after one relapse that it's like, I feel like I don't even want to start again. And I don't work on the same things anymore, uh, but where it's not like I'm like trying to give up pharmaceuticals or alcohol anymore. I, those are gone. But I now I'm like, well, my meditation streak, and it's like, the streaks mm -hmm. work really well. And then you lose the streak. And it's like, I don't even want to start again. I was on day 300. And now I'm at zero. It's like not as motivating until you get past 300. And I feel like the same things happen when, when I experience some sort of trigger or emotional setback. And there's been so many times where even trauma aside, 
where I can just feel like I'm in what I call like my small self or my lower self <laughs> having a day where I just feel judgmental. I want to like <laughs> yell at my husband for things, whatever. And, and it's those days where I'm like, I'm a fraud. Like, how do I have this show? People listen to me, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And I had this realization one day that I'm like, I'm literally judging myself for just my thoughts. The growth here is that I haven't even said these things out loud. <laughs> and so sometimes that even affects me and like, where I'm like, does this person still like me? And then I'm like, oh, I just had this negative thought spiral about them one time. I never said anything out loud. They have no idea this happened. <laughs> like that was my small self being judgmental based on my own insecurity. And now I'm like all insecure in the relationship. But it happens in a lot of different areas. And so I have to consciously rewrite that like like actually log no what did i do well for this person what did i hold back or transform before i let it accrue any karma <laughs> you know stuff like that but if i don't take the conscious effort to either write it down or like sit and meditate and really bring things to mind it won't come to mind it'll just be that kind of dark cloud over the whole thing bringing awareness to those thoughts, I feel like in stopping the spiral in its place, I think is such is such a huge win. Um, because some because I mean, I can relate to that so much. And I feel like there have been so many instances where this little thing would happen, then my thoughts would just spiral. And then it's just I'm just causing so much internal pain just by having like this thought that like goes haywire. And then so building awareness and being able to like reel yourself back in, uh, I think is a huge, huge step. Well, I love leaving listeners with something actionable to focus on this week to help kind of bring to life what we've been talking about. If you're going to give them one practice or method or something to think about, what would that be? So there is one lesson in my book that is called Hold Space for the Goodness. And um, I it's something that I practice regularly now and have always throughout my healing journey because when you're dealing with trauma and you're struggling with your symptoms, it can feel like your world is limited to your suffering. And trauma can trick you into thinking that good things in your life don't exist. And even if there are good things in your life, we can be so consumed by our pain that we don't acknowledge the good things, even if they're right there with us. And as I've learned, healing is just as much about letting yourself experience the good as it is about working through your pain. So um, one practice that I really love is to name some good things that happened to you that day. And I think it's a great thing to do in the evening as you're like winding down. So you're going to, you, you know, you're priming your brain for a nice restful night of sleep when you're ending on the good note and thinking about the good things in your life. And these good things can be really small. They can be enjoying 
coffee in the morning, cuddling with your partner or your animal. It could be taking a walk outside and enjoying the sunshine. It could be something that you observed or saw, but just take note of whatever these good things are that are in your life. And if you can list five, if not just two or even one, but just holding space for that goodness, because um, it can be really hard to continue healing when you're just feeling pain. Um, So challenging ourselves to hold space for the good stuff in our lives too can make the journey of healing a lot more endurable. Well, thank you so much for doing the work to transform your trauma and to really dive into it so that you can bring healing modalities to other people. Because I, like I said, everyone has a different way of speaking about their trauma. And sometimes it's, it's the nuances that really connect. Like it's, it's Mm -hmm. your story of like, thinking it wasn't being told or having messages that it wasn't a big deal or it could have been worse that for some reason that's the one that really connects with one of my deeper ones and so I just really appreciate being able to hear different stories perspectives and so for listeners that are interested in learning about you and your book where's the best place for them to connect yeah so my website which is just madelinepopelka.com you can also find me on instagram at healing from ptsd And my book, You're Going to Be Okay, is available wherever books are sold. All the links from this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 322. Your challenge for this week is to hold space for the good. So whether you do this as a gratitude journal, whether you just dwell a couple more minutes when something good comes to mind, Or if nothing good is coming to mind, maybe you take some time to consciously think about good things going on in your life. Whatever your method is. And if you're not used to doing this and if you're in a dark place, this could feel like it takes some effort. But what I don't want you to do is come to the conclusion that there's nothing good in your life. I don't care what you're going through. There is something good. There is a moment that you will be ready to say thank you for this morning, this extra day that I get to wake up and experience. That might not be today, but doing this practice is the first step to getting there. Because what I can promise you is what you focus on expands. And if you are not focusing on any of the goodness in your life, you are not giving it the opportunity to expand. And by nature, you're focusing on the negative things, which, as we just discussed, is expanding them. And I'm not saying I know your situation or that you don't have 100 justifiable reasons to be depressed. But guess what? So do I. And yeah, my life is wildly different now, but I don't think it would be if I wasn't willing to change my thought processes. It took a whole lot of difficult days of faking it until I really felt like something was different. I was sitting there and writing down, thank you for my dog every day for 365 days. (laughs) May his soul rest in fields of wild poppies. Anyways, the point is, your life is your responsibility and you can completely change it 
by changing the way you think about it. So give it a try. And if you need a jumpstart, reach out to me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa. If you found this episode helpful or you think of somebody who could really use it, share it with them. Tap the share button, take a screenshot, tag Mind Love Melissa and Mind Love Podcast. You can find all of my amazing sponsors at mindlove.com sponsors with all of the delicious discount codes. I don't know why I use that adjective, but there it is. And I'm not editing it. You can also find me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week. 